0: This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today.
1: Hello, and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Vallemont. This episode, instead of one of our usual interviews, we have a special feature. Last October, ContraPulse hosted an online panel discussion as a part of the CDSS series Common Time. In this special event, I spoke with four of the ContraDance greats. Becky Tracy, Pete Sutherland, Rodney Miller, and Kate Barnes, about who their mentors and inspirations were, and how they're mentoring and inspiring the next generation of Contra musicians. We'll learn how these musicians fell in love with their craft, we'll hear stories from the early days of touring contrabands, bands, and we explore what tradition is and how it is or isn't changing today. There's video of the panel available on YouTube, we'll put the link in the show notes. Hope you enjoy!
0: So, without further ado, let me first introduce Julie Belmont, who I've had the pleasure of working with over the past nearly two years, it turns out, creating the Contrapulse podcast. Uh, Julie's a fantastic pianist and accordionist, and she's played with bands like Nor'easter and Buddy System all over the country and beyond, and she's passionate about the amazing diversity of dance music and playing piano. has been diving into what that is and how it intersects with the communities we build in her interviews over the past couple of years. So take it away, Julie.
1: Thanks, Ben. And I just want to say thank you to CDSS for making this possible. You know, I approached them with this project idea about five years ago, at least, and it morphed into various forms. And because of COVID, it turned into a podcast. And it's just been a wonderful opportunity to talk with a lot of folks and hear your stories and experience. So thank you, CDSS, for having us here as part of Common Time as well. Um, Well, I don't want to talk because we have some cool things to hear from our illustrious panelists. So um, tonight we have with us Becky Tracy, Kate Barnes, Pete Sutherland, and Rodney Miller. And I think most of them do not need any introduction to most of you. Um, But I'll tell you a little bit about them. Um, from their bio, and um, I will also say that Kate, Rodney, and Pete have all been interviewed on past Contrapulse episodes, and Becky has an interview kind of in the works. So, if you want to hear more about each of them and hear like have more chance for them to talk and hear more about their background and projects, you can check out those interviews um, on all your podcast software and the CDSS website. Um, we thought of this project because. As I was doing interviews with folks on ContraPulse, some themes started to emerge, and that's partly the purpose of the podcast, is just to kind of collect thoughts and perspectives and experiences and kind of take a snapshot, like take the pulse of ContraDance music as it is, and it ended up being kind of frozen in time, in a sense, because of COVID, which I hadn't planned when I started this project. Um, And so I wanted to explore today the theme of mentoring and teaching and learning, Because one of the things I love about this tradition is how welcoming it is to people. And there's a lot of different ways to learn it and pass it on. And I feel like these musicians are conduits. These tunes, some of them have been around for hundreds of years, passing through person to person to person. And they change as they go. And each of them is interpreted in a different way by the personality of whoever is playing them in the moment. And so um, tonight, I'm hoping that... um, We'll talk about things like how did each of our panelists learn and where did they get started and what inspired them and how they're teaching new musicians. Um, I'll just have one fangirl moment that all of you, you know, Becky, Kate, Pete, and Rodney were all huge inspirations for me. And so if I play for Concha Dances, it's your fault. Um, I spent a long time in dance halls, dancing to you, listening to you, sitting backstage and You've all been so welcoming and gracious over the years, just being friendly, sharing tips, talking shop, you know, sharing tunes. And it's just been so wonderful. Um, so uh, let me tell you a little bit about Kate Barnes, uh, who recently just won a, a, a nice award. Yeah. Thanks to CDSS. Um, and she has been performing on piano, flute, guitar, and about a billion other things, for country dancing and English country dancing for decades. Um, She plays with Bare Necessities and the Latter-day Lizards. She's the author of beloved dance books for English country dance and couples dancing. Over 70 recordings, Kate. That's a lot of time in the studio. I know. (laughs) And has played for thousands and thousands of dances in the order of the tens of thousands of dances. Welcome, Kate.
2: Thank Um, Thank you. Honored to be here.
1: Would you be able to tell us a little bit about kind of how you got hooked into playing for dance music and what some of your like seminal moments were that kind of got you started in this?
2: Uh, well, well, I think I always had a bent to this kind of music because of when I was in high school, before I ever heard of contra dance music, I, w- I did some composing and I, I was basically composing pulpits. Um, something about that rhythm and the, the simpler melodies just, just grabbed me. So I was kind of primed already in that direction uh, of uh, enjoying this kind of particular structured 32-bar, um, repeated A's, repeated B's music. Um, now, so in college, the first year, um, after the first year, I went to a contra dance to meet a friend of mine. Um, he never showed up, but I stayed to dance anyway. Um, and I have a theory that if you can get someone to go to advance twice, you'll have them hooked. So I went once, wasn't hooked, but then my friend says, sorry, I forgot. I'll come next week. So I went the next week and then I got hooked onto it. Um, at that time, uh, I also bought a flute just for the hell of it, uh, at a pawn shop in Cambridge. Um, and I started Playing these tunes on the flute. And also, I looked at what the pianists were doing. I think it was Janet Palebitty and Bob Aquillum at that point. Uh, we were going to, Tran- uh, Fitzwilliam, New Hampshire. And I thought, I think I can do that. And so I wrote anyone who could play any kind of melody instrument. We took out Cole Siddle tunes. Uh, and then I would, I would back them up well, not, until they couldn't stand it anymore. And that's basically my start. Uh, but the biggest nudge towards actually playing was, uh, I was at a, at the pit swimming dance playing the flute on the side and McQuillan, who was on stage with, um, Roger Pinard, the fiddler and Janet Paoletti on, on piano, um, looked at me and shouts as, as McQuillan only could across the hall said, you get up here. <laughs> so I was petrified, clutching my flute. I, I I I came on stage and he slammed his hand on his accordion box next to his chair and said, "Sit here and play." <laughs> it was it was great. It was fantastic, and uh, it's just been uh, downhill or maybe uphill ever since then.
1: <laughs> and the rest is history, as I say.
2: Yeah, oh, I actually uh, I, I I played some on the piano for um, during the breaks because they had a pianist. And Jim Kennedy, who ran the, the Fitzwilliam dance, uh, said, hey, I think we can work you into the hiring schedule. So that was kind of my first uh, professional contract gig, the Fitzwilliam dance during the summers.
1: That's amazing. Just yeah. that moment. I love that story. Hey, sit down and play.
2: <laughs> I know. It, it's so Bob.
1: That's so great. Um, well, more about that. Um, but let's uh, say hi to Becky Tracy here. Um, Becky, you all know her distinctive, beautiful fiddle playing, which has been a defining presence in some of the most popular and innovative dance bands to come out of New England. You know, Wild Asparagus, Nightingale, you know, her playing draws on French, Canadian and Irish and other New England styles, and it's grounded in her upbringing in the dance scene of New England. Um, Welcome, Becky. I'm so glad to have you here.
3: Uh, It's delightful to be here. Thank you.
1: How did you end up getting roped into playing for dance music and making it a uh, part of your life's work?
3: Um, So, so without knowing it, I kind of got brainwashed into this whole scene as a child, because my dad was a caller for community dances. And so I would go off to Girl Scout dances and, um, you know, just all kinds of little, little dances with my dad. And, um... And he would call. Sometimes my mom would help him. And uh, sometimes he had a band. And Bill Welling and Bill Wallach were occasionally that band in Connecticut. Um, But he also brought records like so many of those colors did. And so I actually listened to a lot of Don Messer and the Ralph Page Orchestra. And I had no idea who I was (laughs) listening to. I just kind of grew up dancing to that music. And it wasn't until I got... I, I did contra dance I went out to a few contra dances here and there through college I went to a few up like in Etna New Hampshire but it wasn't until I moved to maine um, and went out to a contra dance um, and Michael Connolly danced with me and he he somehow asked me if I played an instrument and I said well I made the mistake at the moment at the time I thought it was the mistake because it was the end of my dancing for the most part. He said, do you, do you play? And I said, I play the violin. And he, he said, well, <laughs> and he started to drag me to all these sessions and I started having the best time. Um, you know, he, he brought me to a lot of Irish sessions and maybe sit in with bands and uh, help me find people to play with. And then when I moved to Vermont, there were more people um to play with their great musicians walter weber was a big influence in a band there that i joined called the bog carrots of all names and um uh it just kept going as i moved people were sort of they would you know kind of bring you in and teach you what what they knew and um it was kind of uh you know as we know a war- it's a warm welcoming um community so that's the gist of it
1: that's wonderful where where in Maine were you living I was in Portland Maine in Portland yeah this, mm-hmm. Maine was the place where I went to my first contra dance and I got hooked on it because they were so welcoming it's just such a great community there
3: did you go was your first contra dance Bodenham or was it a different one
1: it was the North Yarmouth dance at the West Custod Hall
3: oh. The one that burned.
1: Yeah. And it was just magic. And I don't think I would have gone back to contra dancing if it hadn't been the energy of the people in the room and their friendliness that pulled me back in. Because I certainly wasn't good at the activity in the beginning. I found it very overwhelming. (laughs) But I was like, whoa, this is so great. And you just feel that energy. So that's just really lovely. Um, Well, we'll come back to that as well. Uh, We have Pete Sutherland with us tonight. Uh, Vermont musical legend, um, both an accomplished instrumentalist and a singer-songwriter, songsmith. Pete plays fiddle, piano, banjo, melodica, 800 things I don't know about, um, for contra dancing, and he's been doing this for decades, both as a founding member of the Clayfoot Strutters and a veteran of many groups, including Metamora, and now with this current contraband, Pete's Posse, which is just a musical adventure on wheels. <laughs> Um, Pete's also been an artistic director, a producer, and a mentor for several folks, um, like Young Tradition Vermont and other groups. Um, Pete, how did you end up playing for dances?
4: Uh, well, up here in, um, in I'm from Burlington uh, originally. Um, there had been contra dancing in the previous generation. I didn't grow up with any of this. My dad, my dad was not a caller, and. Um, so I got all the way to college without actually hearing any of this music. And um, and then um, and this was like right around the Kent State era and stuff like that. And then all these kind of like um, kids with backpacks and mandolins in tow started kind of like roaming the halls of the university. And and um, and it was just like this sort of inkling that there was this whole thing going on that I hadn't necessarily heard about all the time I was listening to Led Zeppelin or whatever. So um, Uh, So I, at that point I had gotten a banjo and then I got a fiddle and I was scratching away and fell in with enough people that, that kind of like thought that they know, knew how to sort of like keep a beat, uh, to play for some really simple, not contrary at that time, square dancing actually. Um, but, um, just a few years later and there's and, and so we were trying to make something happen in the northern vermont area this is before you get up here becky because i wasn't actually around here when you got here but um so we kind of cross didn't cross paths there but um so we tried to invent things from the ground up as best we could from like you know reading about them or somebody said hey i went to a dudley dance you know like three years ago and then they try to like everybody it was like stone soup. Everybody brought a piece of it. And then, and so we were trying to make that happen. Uh, meanwhile, then I got really out of college. I got really interested in um, being a migrant hippie apple picker and um, <laughs> and was working down in Brattleboro for a while. And, and we, several times after working 10 and 11 hour days, piled in the car with a peanut butter sandwich and went off to a Dudley dance. and um, And it was the classic six-person powerhouse version of the Can- canterbury orchestra um so it was just an electrifying experience and um and you know just sweat just like rolling off of everybody and uh, um, so that was really visceral and um uh, at, at that time i was really much more interested in playing old-time music um it's like the first language that really bit me in the butt and um so i took my apple picking ventures down south so i could visit old fiddlers down there and stuff and um um, and there was certainly no dancing in Asheville or anywhere else at that time. We're talking like the mid seventies. Um, it's pretty sleepy still. And, uh, and I, so I was, I was working down there and I was like, you know, falling in with these, you know, really, you know, near to well, uh, you know, uh, back to the lander types down there that were just living for, for. Playing old time music, and not only playing it, but like being reenactors of it. <laughs> and, <laughs> there's no really better word for it. And so, you know, like, I just for a nice Yankee boy, I was ended up in some incredibly, like, crazy and stressful, and probably downright dangerous situations pursuing this music, and you know, like, puking my guts out on the lawn of somebody I just bought some moonshine from, and. You know um, <laughs> it's so far from like the niceties of a of an English country dance so, yeah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah I mean it, but that to me was like I needed I really needed uh, you know like a complete jump start you know in having not heard this music and having tried my hand at other things so it was it was really great I mean but you know. I mean, I'm not here to preserve uh, cultural uh, stereotypes, but <laughs> some of the people I was hanging out with really kind of would make the Beverly Hillbillies look like the Kardashians. I mean, they were like <laughs> incredibly. <laughs> yeah, you knew you were in North Carolina in the mountains. So I came home with that kind of like experience. And then, and then, contradicting all of a sudden was happening. So uh, then I kind of like, you know, broadened my musical palette, which was, I was interested in other stuff anyway. and uh, And it just kind of, step by step from there.
1: So. Sounds like an immersive experience, to say the least, Pete.
2: <laughs> I, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I heard that in the early days, you were also a caller.
4: I, I tried my hand at that. You know, I think everybody was kind of into the DIY thing um, because we had no living tradition. So we were just really trying to get something going and everyone was trying everything. And probably that's why I cultivated being a multi instrumentalist as well. But I could still call it a wedding, you know. I could do that. You know, it's what do you need to, to know? That. You don't need that much.
1: Um, well, I want. To, oh, there's so many questions for all of you. But I want to get to Rodney, and then we will delve into all these things in more depth. Um, and our last panelist tonight is Rodney Miller, fiddler, violin maker, tunesmith. He's renowned for his New England style fiddling and his unique fiddle style and compositions. Um, From the New England Chestnuts albums to air playing, air dance to the string rays and many more, Rodney's playing showcases both tradition and innovation. He's been playing dances for more than 40 years on both coasts and everywhere in between and abroad and has been recognized as a master fiddler. Um, Thank you for joining us tonight, Rodney.
5: Nice to be here, Julie.
1: So how did you get started playing in New England for contra Dances?
5: Well, um, I started uh, because uh, my grandfather's violin was handed to me at age seven. My mother was a professional musician, a piano and organ player. My dad was a minister, so we moved quite a bit. But um, I grew up mostly in upstate New York near Rochester, and my mom was born in Glens Falls and lived in Bluemont, West Virginia, for a while. And um, both grandfathers played violin. Um, And I used to take uh, my dad's uh, father's violin and go play for him before my grandfather, before he died in the uh, late 60s, I guess. Um, So I came into it. um, There was an Irish a popular Irish tune book on the piano and um, I started playing um, tunes out of that book with my mom and uh, I realized innately that there was a ancestral history of music and my dad grew up near Syracuse and he told me about square dances that he used to go to as a boy Anyway, there was this um, sort of collective folk mentality in the family, and we would go to um, fiddler's picnics in Canadagua, like on a Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. and um, it really piqued my interest in playing more tunes. Um, so I was getting training with some lessons how to play, and um, back then it wasn't um, known that if you were left-handed, you would play right-handed. That was assumed that I didn't um, get left-handed training because I am left-handed. So I always see the world in a kind of a reversal way that's set up for righties. And I managed to um, play enough fiddle music and work through my right-hand awkwardness of bowing um, because my coordination was in my left hand Um, But it took um, probably a decade decade of playing for dances to smooth out my bowing arm. And um, as I was doing that, then I was creating my own sort of um, bowing style, a lot of lifting off the strings and stuff. So I was, um, because of the Fiddler's Picnic situation, um, I was um, eager to learn some of the basic repertoire from the old-time Fiddlers' Associations. <clears throat> so I um, looked up local fiddlers, like in West Walworth, New York, outside of Rochester, and went to visit Wayne Merrill, who used to be a Adirondack lumberjack at the turn of the century in 1900. And he played some tunes for me, and I played along with him. <clears throat> and then I did a collecting trip to um, Vermont, um, to Barry, Vermont, I met Clem Myers, uh, head of the Northeast Fiddlers Association. And he put me in touch with Neil Converse up in Plainfield. So I went to visit him and recorded him on a tape-to-tape hmm. recorder and learned Green Mountain Petronella and a bunch of other stuff. that um, and I was beginning to play for contra dances. But when we get back, I was recruited um, to go to Oberlin College to be in a string band, actually. That was the main reason I went Um, and they needed a fiddler. The fiddler had left as I was coming in as a freshman. And so I started playing with the string band at college. Um, And that led me to um, know Jane Wilk who was a sophomore. I was a freshman and she wanted to do square dancing and contra at college and she needed a fiddler, so she recruited me. I started playing for dances then as a freshman. And she had grown up with a family, the Wilkes from New York City, who had gone to the Pinewoods camp in the 50s and 60s, and she had grown up with this stuff. And she just begged me to go to Pinewoods. She said, they're gonna love you, you're gonna love it. So I applied on scholarship and washed dishes I think in 70, 71, the summer of. And I uh, met May Gad and played. she played drums on the stage and uh, a bunch of others. But I also met Dudley Loughman. And uh, he immediately hired me to come up <clears throat> and play his summer schedule of Contra Dances in New Hampshire. And uh, I sort of morphed into moving to New Hampshire at that point. So I traveled around with Dudley for a summer, and that led to more dance opportunities with my brother Randy playing piano. And we started playing the Nelson dances, regulars replacing Newt Tolman and Kay Gilbert. Um, Anyway, uh, it got me into playing for dances, and it's been nonstop since then.
1: Wow. What a story. You know, it's like when we look at all these different stories of how people end up playing country music, some of us are born into it and some of us are not, and just kind of randomly encounter it in life. You know, some people are kind of pushed into it, like, hey, like I was at a party and the piano player got up and left, and someone said, You play piano. And I said, Not this kind of music. Sit down, go boom, go chuck. Here's some chords. You know, like we all have these different stories of, how we get pulled into it. But there's often like this one person who's like a mentor or a friend or a, you know, a partner or someone who brings us into it. And then there's all these places that are like incubators that we don't know about. Like when you're a first a dancer and you go to like a dance at a hall, you don't realize that there's this whole deep rooted network of places where musicians can meet each other, like Pinewoods, you know, and a lot of people, get introduced at, at, to dance music at places like a Shoken or main fiddle camp and so these camps are really important places for people to go and get immersed in things um so i would just love to hear a little bit about or just you know talk about how these mentors influenced you and like if there's for each of you like a moment or like a really important thing you learned from one of your mentors or like a turning point when you realized you were going to become a dance musician. Um, and I'm also curious, like these names that pop up over and over again, you know, like Dudley or Bob McQuillan who were their mentors, you know, cause we're all here roughly the same time era, but who were they learning from and how did they, you know, we do have an interview with Dudley Loughman, um, the very first episode of contra pulse which you can go back and listen to um, you know because like you say Pete there's also the question of some of us you know we're just inventing things as we go and the traditions have restarted all over the country and kind of make it up as we go as well so um, I'm gonna stop talking now <laughs> and if any of you want to jump in and and share one of those formative mentoring experiences I'd love to hear about it I'm not in, used to interviewing four people at once. I don't know how to start. Raise your hand, <laughs> Pete. You're smiling. Well, so your um, thoughts about this?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, somebody dead air is a terrible thing. Thank uh,
1: you. Please th- rescue
4: me. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure that in contradancing, I had um, any direct mentoring. But I've sort of said that as mentoring for me in old age has become like a super powerful and important thing. I think any mentoring that I received uh, is going to necessarily feel really different and possibly be just like not as visceral a sort of a, a thing when I think about it as a factor in there. I think it was more like immersion. That word got used already. I felt I feel like I was just willing to just dive in and immerse myself in this entire other way of, of, um, uh, moving as a community, you know, uh, through, through, uh, the work week and the weekend and, 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 finding all these other people to whom this was just this passionate thing. And everybody was smiling all the time, you know, because like, Hey, we've got something cool going on here. Um, so that to me is different, uh, you know, I, but I will say that I had, um, as far as learning tunes, uh, I've had at different times, I've had mentors and one that I talk about a lot because I was just so amazingly fortunate to live about a half mile from him was uh, Louis Baudouin, the Franco-American fiddler, um, from, a, you know, kind of like a second generation immigrant, uh, from, from a small town up by the St. Lawrence, um, and, uh, and his whole clan ended up here via Lowell Mass, the no community there, but Jer- Jack Kerouac was also, uh, yeah, his family was there as well at the same time. But there's a funny thought, Jack Kerouac and the Boudreaux. But um, anyway, so the Boudreaux ended up in Burlington and, um, and, and I, I was just out of college and, I, and I'm like, people are like, hey, there's this guy that plays pretty, pretty cool, what we call French Canadian tunes at that point, and so you know, go over there. And, uh, and that was, that was amazing because as we can all testify from some experience, you know, it's the fact that the mentor is um, unbelievably generous and welcoming that kind of really seals the deal (laughs) way more important than tunes. (laughs) That's my piece.
2: Oh, dead air,
1: yeah, it's just about like <laughs> I'm gonna call on you if you don't oh start maybe talking. we should
2: call next how about how about you, Kate?
1: <laughs> yeah, you get to tag the next person when you're done talking, yeah, yeah, Kate, what do you think about this?,
2: you know, this kind of reminds me I was in I go doing this college interview, and the uh the interviewer said, "So tell me about yourself, and that kind of broad, unfocused general <laughs> question scares the hell out of me, right? Can you give me something more specific?
3: uh now i forgot what the question was (laughs) it's about it's about mentors in the uh yes you know and and if there was a sort of defining moment that that kind of propelled you into it sounded like you actually kind of covered this kate earlier yeah
2: yeah i mean i had people who 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 influenced my style immensely. I, I started with McQuillan's very basic style. And I have to say, uh, I, I got hired by Donna Hebert, Donna Hines at the time, um, to play at the Fitzwilliam Dance on the piano. And uh, then we went on to play the Brim Romette Dance down in Boston. And Tony Parks and I swapped the piano every other week on that gig. And I learned so much about great piano playing from Tony Parks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, uh, he's certainly very generous with his style. Is he he a mentor? I don't know, but I I learned a lot from him for sure. Mm
3: -hmm. Right. Yeah, I feel like um, each band that I went through, there was always somebody that I was learning from, you know, as, as time went on, you know. There were the first the initial bands in Maine where I was I didn't really I mean I had the tunes in my head and I was able to learn by ear, but I didn't really know what I was doing playing for dancing. And then there was the band in uh in in the Burlington, greater Burlington area, the Bog Carrots with Walter and Jim Search and a few other people, but Walter was this beautiful player and you know I absorbed his you know, just so much. But at the time, part of your question, Julie, was about, you know, propelling into this, you know, when did I become a dance musician? Like I was playing for dances and it was a blast, but I was also teaching math in the local public school, you know, which a lot of people have done over the years. They've had these lives that Mm -hmm. have been, you know, sort of Two pieces. It's like Louis Baudouin. He didn't play the fiddle all the time. That wasn't the thing. He had a job, and then he played the fiddle on the outside. Um, but uh, but the propellant for me, the propelling moment was just uh, I, I would go to those those um, I would go down to Augusta in the summer. I was learning from um, Brendan Mulvahill and Eugene O'Donnell down there. And uh, I was just playing more and more in the summer and just doing that immersive thing that so many people are doing now with all the camps. And I would get back to the school year and realize I couldn't do that thing that other people do in the way I wanted to. Like I was, you know, having such a great time playing the fiddle. But to be a math teacher, you know, of young kids, it's all-consuming and you can't really do both so i decided to take a year off and um and see what happened and in that year i met the boys with nightingale and uh wild asparagus decided to audition me and and uh and i managed to stay with uh, all those people those good people for a long time mm mm-hmm. Sometimes all it
1: takes is those chance meetings, you know, or, you know, your life goes in a slightly different direction. And then there you are. I'm glad you stopped teaching math.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the time I thought, you know, I can do this again. If I'm going to do something new, this is the time. And I love teaching math. I still love teaching. I still love teaching. So could happen again. <laughs> I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet in COVID, but it hasn't.
1: <laughs> Do you have anything you want to add to this, Rodney? Putting you on the spot here.
5: Uh, sure. Um, there have been um, several mentors um, early on. I was traveling some uh, down to like the pipe stem. Um, fiddle Festival in West Virginia and also to Union Grove just to be around more of the music. And I met, um, at Pipestem. I met Franklin George, a fiddler from West Virginia. And um, he actually taught me the Salimony Waltz that uh, we recorded on Air Playing Album. Uh, great waltz. Um, and he pointed out to me that there were a number of fiddle tunes that a lot of the Southern players play that are actually sound like they're directly out of the Northern tradition of playing, like the Irish and the Scottish styles. And um, so that sort of like tied it in for me that it was a broad um, area of music that translated to all different areas of the United States. Um, Another mentor early on was Alan Block and I remember on a camping trip that my parents loved to go camping to Lake Dunsmore, Vermont. And um, there happened to be a fiddle uh, convention up in Thetford Center, and we went through that. And I <clears throat> saw that Alan Block was playing. I listened to him. And um, I had his album, The Old Time String Band Project, on Electra, I think. And I took the album. I had it with me because I I don't know why, on a camping trip, I just took fiddle music with me. And so I ran up to him in the parking lot and had him sign my album. But he was influential and um, great uh, style of playing with his foot movement and his knees and his sandals. Um, But then it was um, probably the most important mentor um, for my playing was through Ralph Page. So I used Mm. to travel with uh, McQuillan and Ralph Page to play for dances down in Concord, Mass, and around. And we would travel together. And I would first go to Ralph's um, house on Washington Street in Keene, New Hampshire. And then McQuillan would drive in with his Jeep and drive all of us, the three of us, down to the dance. And um, so I had time with Ralph in his uh, parlor when he wasn't smoking a cigar, he would tell me stories about um, the f- camp that he ran. And he had hired um, Johnny Carignone to come down from Canada to play at his camp. And he was just absolutely raving about how John Carignone would um, play Money Musk like never the same way twice, like eight, ten times It would be all different. So Ralph was presenting to me like, Go for it, you young fiddler. Do something with it. And so when I recorded Money Musk for the New England Chestnuts album, I came up with a version that went from the key of G to key of A. Now, nobody that I know of plays Money Musk in the key of G, but I thought it would make a nice key switch. And um, I worked out all kinds of variations, uh, and that was directly related to being influenced by Ralph and McQuillan for writing tunes and all that stuff. So, Anyway.
1: I think it's easy for us who are learning to get kind of caught up in like how it used to be done as if there's like a crystallized tradition that is like the right way. And, you know, when you hear stories about some of the folks that some of us never got to meet, you know, a lot of them were, pretty flexible and experimental and interested in trying new things. And, you know, it's just like when I first met Bob McQuillan, I lurked around him for years, just watching him because I was too afraid to talk to him. And then I came up and asked him if if I could have lessons. He's like, I don't give lessons. But then I found out he was just joking and he gave me his card and invited me to chat. But, you know, he liked all the new things that were happening, I think. And so... One of my questions for all of you, like, as you learned and began playing, you all ended up innovating country music that we have now, like it has flourished in the last decades, different styles, formats, bands, people traveling all over the country. And what were you thinking about in terms of tradition? Like, were you not worried about it? Were you like, this is maybe not the right phrase, but what were your thoughts about tradition and what you were doing and were you worried about whether it was quote traditional or not, or were you just going off in whatever direction you were inspired to go in?
2: I, I just have to bring up the, uh, the Barnes rule of inverse geographical traditionalism, <laughs> which states that the further you are away from the source of a tradition, the more conservative you are in playing it.
3: Yeah. Yes. I believe
2: yeah. that. <laughs> so it's like, um, it's like Irish musicians and, and the great seminal bands like the Bakke band, the Stockton's Wing, Uh they, they were from Ireland, so they felt free to, to play around and, and innovate and add new things and syncopate and, all, and synthesizers, you name it. And here in the States, we were, we were a little further away, and we kind of treated with kid gloves. I, this was driven home for me when I played in Seattle once. Um, I think I was with Rodney on this gig and uh there was a, a local band, and they said, "Well, now we're going to play a New England tune, and it was so staid and so um limp i I think, and I think that was that law in effect mm-hmm. so I, I think uh I've never had much well, I don't want to say I haven't had much respect for tradition, but I think it's a canard to think that if there was any one time where where things were only done one way I, I like to think that musicians always innovate. Three hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, now, um, I'm, I'm sure you know someone's sitting in Haydn's symphony. He said, "Geez, I wish I could play it this way." You know. So I, I, I think innovation is constantly happening, and uh, hopefully, I can remain open to that.
3: I'm sure you can.
2: <laughs> I, mean, you think?
3: <laughs> I think. In my
4: dotage, yeah. <laughs> you can't turn back now, Kate.
3: <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, uh, um, one of the first people who uh, who sort of who brought me into really playing for contra dancing was Ted Sanella. And what he did is he hired me for this gig in Texas. I, I, I had never really played professionally, and he brought me to Texas alone to play with all the musicians down there. And um, I, you know, at the time, I just thought he was going to, you know, tell me sort of what I should do, you know, like that I should be playing a certain tune for a certain dance. And it turned out that he was very open to having things tried out and he he would feed me tunes that he thought were really interesting from other bands. And it sort of opened the door of, okay, so this is this really well respected you know deep in the tradition caller who is saying go ahead and try you know try out stuff and um and that was that was definitely a sense of freedom you know that he that he gave us was good
4: i think i was always um when i was starting out i was gluing myself Largely to, and this is on the fiddle, which is what I was really working hard at for a while uh, and then getting on to some other things, but um, really gluing myself to um, people who were more innovative. So no matter whether it was on the old time side or the Irish side or the Quebec West side, people that seemed to really have that going on and were, you know, it wasn't even like afraid, not afraid or any other like emotional term. it was just like, that's the way they play they do this thing where they don't always play the melody the same way. And um, and whether it was scripted or not, it didn't really matter to me because that just caught my ear so hard. Um, and so I modeled on that. And then when I went off to play with some of my aforementioned rough and tumble old-time brethren, you know, at some parking lot, they'd be playing this very beautifully, but without a, a great degree of um, personal innovation in there. And then, and then And they would look at me like, you know, is that, what are, are you doing? Bluegrass? What's going on there? Are you playing bluegrass? Um, because I was advising. Um, but it's, it was true when I started listening to Irish music, like who caught my ear was people that were in the band. So it's just, it's been my model. It's like a group mentoring situation or something. Mm-hmm.
1: What were you thinking in the early days of uh, your tunes, Rodney, when you were making, you know, albums like Airplane and stuff? And I have a feeling some people maybe reacted to the sound of some of the things you were doing.
5: Oh, one of the um, couple of the inspirations are um, one was from McQuillan writing uh, his tune Dancing Bear, which just sort of reached out and grabbed me like, oh, man, that is such a cool tune. So like direct and simple, yet it has so much to say. And I just um, went wild with it. Um, And another thing was uh, Kate's tune, Fair Jenny, which we included on Airplane, as um, uh, inspirational too, had such a, a sort of a rock and roll to me. It was like Fairport Convention, and I wanted to play it that way. And it was uh, an awesome addition. So some of my early tunes, like I'm thinking of Bluemont Waltz um, from 1986 on a dance tour to Bluemont, Virginia, and the setting in the town hall and the rolling Virginia hills inspired a tune the next day, um, having played in that location. So it has to do with emotion and feeling and response. Um, sort of internalizing what you've just been through, and then it comes out um, because in our case, you know, fiddle or music um, is our language. We're not super English speakers. I mean, I don't, I've always had trouble speaking, um, maybe because I have asthma, but um, I speak through my fiddle, so the fiddle has a lot to say from inside me. And um, the tunes just come up because I feel it. Um, I was going to talk a little bit, if I can, about reaching out to the younger generation um, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And an in- interesting event, maybe, um, is being worked on. This woman from England contacted me about a month ago. And um, she teaches grade or level three in Bristol, England, out on the West Coast. And she grew up as a Shetlander. And so um, she took originally fiddle lessons from Tom Anderson when she was a kid. And I was just remembering that about the same time period um, in the aftermath of airplane coming out um, and Peter and Kate, sorry, Kate, But we were asked to go to Shetland as a duo, and we did in 85 or '6 or something in there. And I think she was um, exposed to air playing. Anyway, she had kept that in mind all these years. She stopped playing fiddle for a few years, and she's been a teacher, um, moved to England and married an Englishman. But um, she said the air playing and my fiddling has been so important to her in her life that she wanted to bring it into her classroom so we're going to do a zoom where i get up at six thirty a.m and zoom to england for 30 uh seven-year-olds <laughs> and uh so that's very cool reaching out and she keeps the music alive in her classroom she said there mm-hmm. are probably more english as second language kids there because it's a working community Um, um, But anyway, she just plays music throughout the day at the the morning gatherings and uh, art activities and all this stuff. She has background music and often plays the Airplane album and other fiddle music. Um, So she wanted to bring that to the kids because it's alive for them. And that's Mm. one of the things that's so important is to make it alive in your world. You know, like when I was growing up, I had family support and promotion, and um, kids need peer groups of uh, other kids playing music, I think, to make it ring true, especially in this day and age, you know, with so much uh, media stuff permeating their ears that um, it's important to expose them to a wide range of stuff, including fiddle music.
4: Well, the, I, the peer group thing is so true. I mean, that's our whole thesis up here and all the, the organizations that we, um, and I, I think it's true down in Becky's Corner and it's true in New Hampshire. There's so many places that I'm aware of now where there are, uh, pretty active year-round mentoring, uh, situations and opportunities for, for kids who are otherwise considered to be kind of weirdos and oddballs. I mean, we all are, but, um, when you're a teenager, it's pretty, um, it's, it's, terrifying to be that and if you happen to have an interest in in um in some of this kind of music to to meet anybody else your age group you know even if you didn't have that many other lifestyle choices and dress code or anything in common you'd be like oh my god this my people so um you know that's that's enough fuel for a fire that's been burning at least in in my neighborhood up here for um uh, oh, like 20 years at this point
1: Yeah. So it's like, how do we foster these kind of environments? You know, like going back, I'm sort of monitoring what people are writing in the chat as well. And, you know, it's an interesting question about traditionalism and how that can really intimidate new folks. Because I think a lot of folks who are new to Contra World often play other instruments and they're used to maybe classical music where you have to, quote, do it right, which I feel like, you know, programmed a lot of us. And then when I switched from classical music to traditional music, I was like, oh, I can do this over I want. And it takes a long time to unlearn that. And I think a lot of new musicians, they want the sheet music and they want to know exactly how it goes. And I think being flexible and welcoming, like you say, and just giving off this vibe of anything goes, you know, it is a living tradition, like Katie says, and the way you know it's a living tradition is when you don't have to care about what you're doing and whether it's traditional or not, right? You can just do what you want. And I was interviewing Ben Smith yesterday, and we were talking about electronic contra, which is not everybody's cup of tea, but he and I and others have had a lot of fun playing around with it. It's like a musical playground. And I asked him if he worried about what is traditional. And he's like, well, no, we know what contra dance music sounds like. And this is something different. And as long as there's something still that exists that's fiddle tunes and good rhythm and it's danceable, why not play with the format, you know, and why not experiment with what it could be like? We're not trying to replace anything with anything else. It's just one more flavor, right? That you can add to whatever you're doing. Um, so I'm curious, what are the most important things that you think to teach your students when you're teaching. Um, Also, someone is asking like, well, then what is dance music, contra dance music in this setting? If we can make it whatever we want, what are the most important essentials that make it still contra dance music? Um, And what do you think is most important to teach to new people? I won't say young people because anyone of all ages can be new at this and play for dances.
3: Um I I don't know what the uh you know perhaps the essence of uh you know in terms of what's the most important thing that I teach but in terms of um playing for dancing I'm of course uh focused on people's rhythmic playing and trying to help them develop that um and you know and that is a huge it's a huge thing so it may not even be obvious. Some of, my, some of my students love Irish music, for example, and um, don't necessarily play it in a, a rhythmic way. And so, you know, instilling um, rhythm uh, into the music is, is something we work on all the time. And I actually remember, Kate, something from a, a workshop years and years and years ago that I took with you, <laughs> where you were saying, it doesn't matter if you have the right chord or not, but you have to play it in time.
2: <laughs> in fact, that's often a, a great way to discover new avenues of improvisation.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And the other thing I learned from you, which is sort of is about improvisation, is if you make a mistake, Try to do it again so that people think it's the right, that you're trying to do it.
4: Uh, that's the definition of jazz, I think. So <laughs> I've read.
3: I do that all the time. I try to repeat my mistakes just to make them see like I think I was really trying to do that. It
4: actually works. It actually yeah. works a lot of the, t- a lot of the time.
5: <laughs> well, I thought the key to mistakes is not to show any facial expressions. <laughs> like surprise oh. or like oh ooh.
2: yeah right, right
3: I actually teach my students to smile when they mistake if they make mistakes um, yeah I've had that, to teach myself that same thing <laughs> yeah that, that
4: is a winner too that's a yeah. winner Yeah,
3: but that's not about the most important thing for dancing <laughs> but it kind of
1: is right that it's partly that spirit of like have fun with it, right? And right. welcome those opportunities when they come. I think smiling through it, a mistake is deeper than it sounds, right? Because it means that you're like open to it when it happens. Yeah.
3: And also, you're not beating yourself up because it's really not that important.
2: And the audience doesn't want us to do that. No. No. All right. <laughs> I, I often get piano students. Uh, Actually, agno students and haven't for a number of years now. But uh, uh, pianists who um, have been playing for a while and they have a lot of technique, um, but it, but so often, sadly, they just don't have the basic feel, the rhythm. So they can do all this fancy stuff with their right and left hands, but they don't have that basic rhythm. Uh, and it's not even just a matter of precise time; it, it's a way of propelling the rhythm along with your backup playing. And um, I, I don't know what it is, maybe playing on a, on a slight leading edge of the beat, as opposed to some other, other styles of music, I'm not sure. But uh, that feel, that rhythm feel is often what the dance. A lot of the students are lacking. And it's often why a classical musician, who probably has a hundred times my technique, will still not, you know, often be a not very good dance musician. It's interesting
3: right, and it's all it's it's actually what I when I think of pia- a piano player beginning, I think of Bob McQuillan as the beginning because like that's the root you know and it's it's almost like the tune if you take the tunes and kind of think of the tunes as like the Bob McQuillan kind of tune you know just kind of like rough and ready tune that that instills the beat. You know, um, and then then you can get more complicated. Right. But you're right. When a student comes at you and they're really great and they can play the heck out of their their instrument, sometimes it's really hard to strip them down into like really being rooted. I don't usually
2: appreciate it. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, I'll say it's been a real blessing to be active in the Contra scene, um, all along, of course, but, um, especially during the time that I, the last 20 years or so where I was, have been engaged in some pretty active teaching and mentoring, um, which is a broad definition that's kind of, you know, just like it's kind of a wide thing. But anyway, to be able to, to find the opportunities to bring some of the more motivated kids who really seemed like they were aware of dancing and they were aware of instinctively how much fun it was going to be to actually be up there on the stage the way we all know you know including a lot of you in the zoom hang here um it's a slash audience um you know it's just nothing like it it's just you know it's it's the cabaret seat. and um and to be able to watch these kids get up there and you know they i mean they're not ready to be soloists or anything like that but to just play along with the band and we we all had that opportunity you know like like, Kate, you know, you get up here. So it's, you know, sort of like, I'm, I'm eliminating the, the, the bark from the stage. And it's just like, I bring them to the stage and mm-hmm. I set them up. And, and of course we're talking about pre-COVID, but, um, you know, it's just been so rewarding. And then the payoff is that kids see other kids doing it and they like, Oh, that's pretty cool. I want to do that. When's yeah, also
1: in, in Maine, Steve Muse has this amazing group of fiddlers. They oh, Steve, the, geez. Yeah, yeah, they do the coolest stuff, and they're That's so crazy. great.
4: That guy is nuts, but uh, yeah, it's great, in a good way. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so I want to tell a, a little story that uh, happened quite a while ago. Um I was hired to play for um, a, a, a group of campers at Sargent Camp in Hancock, New Hampshire. Years ago when Elvie, my daughter, was a young teenager and I was just getting her hired into playing for some of these low-key dance situations and make some money, you know. And she had been taking quite a bit of piano lessons uh, and was attending... Uh, Apple Hill Chamber uh, music sessions over in Nelson. And um, as part of being part of that Apple Hill thing, she was, as a piano player, asked to play two or three really difficult pieces for other lead instruments. So piano backup for concertos and that kind of stuff. And there was a considerable amount of pressure on her to perform at a high level in public on uh, two or three pieces. And what she said after, directly after one of those performances, she said to me something like, you know, I just love playing for dancing where people are moving to my music. It just feels so free and spirited. And she was comparing that to the pressure and the high classical. Um, events that were happening. And I just think that sort of captures it for a lot of us, or at least for me too, is that freedom of just getting out on stage and people are dancing away and you're sort of making it happen. And they're not, the dancers aren't totally focused on the musicians because I've been at events and gone into the bathroom at intermission and somebody said, let say wow you like the dancing I was like i'm on stage playing music oh so they yeah. don't really hear much so that means that the pressure is lowered for the musicians because it's a social scene and they're interacting getting dance partners lined up and dancing and focusing on how to dance you know so it's a great venue for just getting chops down and playing freely you know and Elvia has continued to play for folk dancing. <laughs> uh, she now lives in Ireland. But
1: yeah, knows. how many of us have uh, gone to the restroom during the break and then been asked to dance while we're on our way back out to the stage? You know, and I'm like, that's it's so great because you're like, oh, this isn't really about me. Great. I don't care if you notice me being on stage or not. You go have a fun time. I'm sorry I can't dance with you. You know, once in a while, you can like duck out for a waltz and leave your bandmates to it. Um, I've known people to like dance up the line book a partner for a tiny part of the dance dance up the line and then just go up on stage and jump in with your bandmates that's also fun to do (laughs) sorry Kate what were you going to say
2: I was just going to say the classic thing is you go out you know to move some off the refreshment table or something and (laughs) and of course people say hey you want to dance the next dance and you say no with the band and then I always get Really? What are you playing? What instrument are you playing? <laughs> <laughs> you, you may find that liberating. I find it slightly demoralizing. But, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, it's like some of these things are so obvious when we're talking about what dance music it is and how we learn it, that it seems silly to talk about them. But to kind of answer that question a little bit more, like it's dance music when it feels like dance music right you just know it when you feel it it's about the rhythm and the lift and the tempo and the energy and then some of the sound also sounds like dance music that has a little more variety to it right doesn't all sound like New England tunes these days you could hear a Breton tune or bombard or a subwoofer and a drum beat or looping or whatever but also the fact that it responds to the dancers in real time, I think, is also the really essential thing about dance music.
3: That's exactly what I was thinking when I was hear, hearing Rodney talk, is just that the, the dancers are actually part of the band in a way, that their feet movement, when I, you know, one of the things that has been hard about being in, in the pandemic is that you don't have that visceral feeling of rhythm that's coming from the floor that you do at a dance. So it's like you're missing part of your band.
2: Yeah, I, I heard this great tip from Todd Whittemore once. I, I said, Todd, how do you know when you, when we're playing too fast? And he says, I listen for, for a balance. And the, if the balance in the hall sounds like a like a gunshot, just right on the money, you're doing fine. And if, if it's scattered, there's probably something wrong with the rhythm.
3: Yeah, that's that's a... <laughs> Great advice.
2: Yeah.
1: So I think, you know, as we think about teaching um, new generations of folks, it's partly just giving them the freedom to play with it and learn and have fun with it, right? Um, But also, how can we as a community do a good job of creating spaces? You know, like when I was a new musician in Boston, I actually found it really hard to find a place to play because the dances at the scout house were amazing, but all the musicians were really great and bands from all over the country, but they didn't allow sit-ins there. And I would, I used to drive out to Greenfield and go to David Kaner's dance and sit on stage and noodle along badly on my penny whistle. Oh, I'm just, I'm sorry, everybody. And there was a dance at MIT that was welcoming to sit-ins. And so that's where I learned how to play. And that's where I met my bandmates in Nor'easter. And I bet all of you have had experiences like that. And there's events like giant open bands like at Nefa or other places, the festival orchestras, where people get a taste of playing in an open band or something like that for the first time. Um what are some of your spaces, your favorite spaces like that? And how can we cultivate more of these opportunities for people?
3: Well, I think you just answered your own question <laughs> because the sit-ins clear. I, you know, I don't, I certainly made use of David Kainer's, um, sit-in contra dances myself early on. And that was, that was huge. It was a huge thing to have a place to go. Um, and I feel like there's other places now that are being developed, like the fiddle orchestras, the the ones, that, again, another David Kainer um, thing. The There's the fiddle orchestra in Western Mass and the one in Montpelier where people of all ages can play. Um, and then there's the young mentors, mentoring situations that like Pete is part of or has been part of. Um, so I think there's tiered things. I think you know, um, just making sure that those things continue to happen is is uh, is an important thing.
2: Yeah, sadly, open bands used to be, I think, more the norm, and now they're very much the exception. Right. Which has
4: got to be a, 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 at least partly an outgrowth of the proliferation of um, at least wannabe professional bands, part-time bands uh-huh. and stuff, um, which, you know, maybe COVID is just a reset button to that whole thing and maybe we'll come out the other end mm-hmm. back into dancing and open bands will suddenly be um, more of the norm again or accepted. Yeah. And of course, we all have the power, if we believe that's a good thing, to make that happen
3: right to make spaces for people to join absolutely and, yeah yeah yep. and and i and there's also that as you say that that feeling of well then you then you get this this spark well i want to you know what can i create in a smaller setting you know with these you know this group of people you know
2: that's where bands come from
3: that's where bands come from right the exactly minor.
2: i got it totally totally yeah
3: Yeah, I think it's
1: important for us as a community to make sure that we have all sorts of different kinds of spaces because we are now in an era of country dance music that's dominated by bands at a lot of events, especially dance weekends. You have to be a band. You have to have a lot of repertoire. You have to be practiced. You have to be good. You have to, like, and the dancers partly drive what country musicians need to do to get booked. And there are some excellent musicians and bands who don't get booked for dance weekends because they don't necessarily and callers because they don't necessarily fit the model of what dancers want or what organizers want. Organizers are also trying to sell their dances often to the same people who are flying to the same weekends. And so that's all great. I'm not like, I love our national dancing and traveling, but we also have to somehow preserve these spaces where people can learn and where we're welcoming to new people. And I hope it's not ever, you know, like I think sometimes the dancers don't want to hear open bands or if you have someone sitting in and you're not playing your normal repertoire for the evening. And I know this is a little controversial, but uh, I just hope that we can kind of keep these spaces and kind of encourage the dancers to be like, we are all creating this experience for each other and let's all have fun with it you know it's not an experience that we're curating for your entertainment like you pay money to see a movie in the same way you know it's like a living community
3: i think that there's there's a lot of places where open bands happen where people are really proud of their open band and excited to be part of it i think of the mega band out in uh um out in oregon you know like i i think that there's um definitely <laughs> places where where that it's like an event, and people mm-hmm. are um, are happy to be part of that event. Go to it. Maybe it's in our selling of it.
2: I wonder if I could quote a theory. Which is, it, it seems to me, um from my when I started to dance, the dance was next was very much a community and and social experience uh, and then a while later or maybe 10 or 15 years later um the focus really on on, on the dancing itself and, and good dancing and people people really wanted uh to dance with other good dancers and and bands started to you know refine their sound um but i know when i started dancing uh it was, it was often to Dovey's open bands and I just, I just thought they were awesome and I love that music and I love the spirit of that massive sound. Um, and I wonder if it's just a change of taste, which, you know, everything changes and maybe someday we'll get back to that feeling of just enjoying this massive band playing the tune all at once. I still think that's kind of magical.
3: Well, hence, hence your leading of the festival orchestra.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's
4: like an anti having been part of some bands that really kind of pushed various envelopes and several of us have been there. but um, it's like an, it's an antidote against sort of a reset button. It's like let's get back to basics and just feel the power this uh, Kate said of the of the massive take on a great melody. Mm-hmm. Arguably a great melody. It's been around a long time. It's going to be, it must be great. And <laughs> people are still playing it and it must really turn dancers on. In fact, right. It sure does. So right. that's always, that's a well, always worth going back to
2: for another drink. All right. I have a question for my compatriots. What makes a good gig? <laughs> I'll, I'll start. Um, for me, again, you have to have one, one any one of three things. Um, it has to be good, interesting musical experience, or has to pay really well. I'm not going to hold up my middle finger. Um or It has to be a great social experience, you know, like a lot, a lot of my friends, which is often why playing for a benefit is great. Even if I don't get paid, it's like there's a looseness and my friends are there, or and the, uh, and, and gate with huge amounts of money. I, I'm always open to that. Um, but also some, you know, sometimes games are say, so, wow, I've never played with this person or, um, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm learning this new style and I can, this is, is, a chance to try that out. So for me, any of those elements makes her a great gate along with, um, uh, a room with a private door when you, when you travel, <laughs> not, sleeping, not sleeping on the sofa.
1: No cats in your bedroom either.
2: Oh no, I like the cats.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, Pete, you're next.
4: Uh, let's see. Great gig. Um, yeah, and more than half my life uh, has been not dance it's band, not not the uh, the band stand for a dance. It's been concert kind of stuff too. So two realities kind of in my brain that are probably a slightly different take on the question. But for dancing. I think um, that people are just like, they're having fun, they're smiling a lot, some kind of engagement, referencing the conversation earlier about getting asked to dance when you go to the bathroom or whatever, like they don't know, they don't know you from anybody. Um, so a, some kind of connection so that, you know, you don't have to be like a rock star, but you know, like they actually recognize <laughs> that that you're one of the people up there on the stage creating this good time. Um, so if there's a little bit of that, I'm pretty happy. Um, and, um, and a good reception to, you know, if you work hard on your, on your sets and your, you know, some of your arrangements and stuff like that, uh, getting a really good reception to that, you know, and having people ask about it later. Um, it's, it's nothing but satisfying.
2: Becky?
3: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about everything that you're saying and I'm connecting to all, all of it, but it seems so long ago and i'm thinking about my um my criteria for a good gig now and it's so different it's um you know it's outside and preferably there's something beautiful nearby i can see beauty uh and and yes there's still there are friends like there's people that i'm connecting to but um but the and and preferably some little interest like maybe there's children dancing, or maybe some of the people actually get up and move around a little bit or boogie off in the corners of the lawn or something. Anyway, I just, I was just thinking how my whole criteria has changed. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Broadway. But,
3: real people, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> well, I think one of the, um, one of the beautiful things of having a band and traveling to a gig, playing a weekend or a week somewhere, is that you have the camaraderie of your band members. And usually that's the band put together because you all pretty much get along together and you're on the gig and you're playing the heck out of the music and your li- people are resp- in the band are responding with amazing stuff. Like, I didn't know you could do that. And this is what keeps it alive, for me anyway, um, is the development of the music to a deeper level. And when it really works with the dancing and you're playing at top uh, response between the band members, there's nothing better. It's like, I want to do this again. I want to do it again. Where's the next gig? And that's so important because I think um, some people get put in circumstances like if you were always going to play with a mega band f- for your career then where is the i mean it's the beauty of the sound but where's the personal development in there because mm-hmm. it's like playing in an orchestra do you you contribute to the whole but are you expressing yourself and if you're expressing yourself then that drives you forward it makes you want to learn more music more tunes get more gigs you know, take it for a ride. So yeah. yeah, and a
1: lot of new tunes are written when you're like in the car or backstage or noodling around with your bandmates, and it's all kind of part of that experience together. So, like as a flip side, you know, bands have also been such a huge part of the flourishing of all these different sounds of conscience music, you know, like these amazing bands, Latter Day Lizards and Nightingale and you know, the string rays and posse and so many great bands and you get this amazing rhythm lock when you play with people for a long time and in a way it's like driving a race car at that point because you can really just focus on the dancers at that point once you've all figured out what you're doing with each other how to play off each other and so you know the professionalization of contra dance music has changed a lot of it but it's also allowed bands to get to this level and this kind of dance like nirvana, which is what a lot of people who travel for dances are looking for, is that incredible euphoric feeling of all being connected, which is what the whole point of the dance is, right? The moment when everything dissolves and everyone is just together, the caller and the dancers and musicians all moving as one. And so I've been grateful for the people who are crazy enough to fly me around and let me play dances all the time because, you know, one of the best ways to learn is just do something a whole bunch of times and mess up a lot, right? And (laughs) having that opportunity to mess up with really good company, especially um, who are often better than you, which is another tip, is to mess up with good people. (laughs) You know, that's the best way to learn.
4: I saw the comment go by and I actually, uh, Dave Morris, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dave Marcus, wherever you are. um, about I'll always be, but, well, he said rather cynically. Make sure you're the worst person in the band. <laughs> uh, meaning that's how you're going to learn the most. I, I was definitely uh, that person in the Clayford Strutters in my own mind, anyway. But I learned so much from some really incredible uh, people, and uh, and uh, and so you know, there's a more benign version of that that could be become conventional wisdom if you're a teacher. It's like always look for opportunities to play with somebody that's better than you. Always, never
1: pass it up. So there's also been this flourishing of original tunes and compositions. And, you know, sadly, I don't think we have time to really delve into this a lot. But, um, you know, there's a question about what inspired you to compose tunes. You know, I think for some of us, it just sort of happens, right, you're around tunes, you start thinking and they come out of your fingers. Um, But do you have any fun stories you want to share about that? before we wrap up? Too open ended the question. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, every little tune that was written by somebody.
1: Right? Even <laughs> the quote-unquote <laughs> traditional tunes. ones, right? They're all original. Yeah.
2: I'm going to get my charger. I'll be right back.
3: Okay. Um, well, I feel like I'm the least experienced um, writer here, but um And I and I have been around some really amazing writers all my uh all my musical life. Um but uh it was actually Anne Percival's artwork that pushed me into writing Mm -hmm. tunes because she was doing this process art where she would take her art and put it under the bed when she was done with it. And it was all about the process. And then it went under the bed, and she wasn't supposed to look at it when she was done. And so I thought I can do that. And so I wrote tunes, and you know, I'd write tunes. I thought of tunes, and then I just turned the page, and that tune was done. And and uh, and and it was a while before there was a tune that I was happy with, but um, but uh, it was sort of that. That feeling that, yeah, it, it, there's something there. It doesn't have to be a, you know, Keith Murphy or a Jeremiah McClain tune right off the bat. Um, you know, because if you're going to judge your tunes when they, you know, when you first form them, you have to be a beginner at any, everything. So, anyway, put them under the bed for a while. Everybody has tunes in them. Yeah. And it's the question of like process versus product,
1: right? And, you know, if you're making a studio album, it's about the product, but dance music, I feel like is about the process. It's about the moment. And a lot of bands make albums, but we know that the magic isn't always in the dance albums. You know, it's actually really hard to capture that energy in the studio. Right. And if you think about tune smithing as that kind of process, of course, we don't have to write new tunes and you could argue as a you know, like Bill adding in the comments that Newt Tolman famously despised the idea of writing new tunes. We also already have lots of great tunes that already exist, right? A, that have, yeah. They've stood the test of time and they're amazing. And we have to keep that balance of like having a common repertoire as a community because the other magical thing about conscientious music is that any musician could sit down with any other musician, and find something to play and you don't even know each other's names and you jam in the hallway at Nefa for three hours or whatever it is or late night somewhere and you become best friends and you know if we have all original compositions where every band has its own repertoire then we'll lose that so it's like keeping that commonality of these like wonderful workhorse tunes and and not losing those at the same time.
5: One of the things I've found, um, very helpful in writing tunes is, uh, like when I was starting playing for dances originally, I played it pretty much straightforward. So it was like two tunes 12 or 14 times through instead of like the chestnuts, which was one tune 14 times, through, which can be a little tedious and hard to do over and over and over. So I was like challenging myself to take the tune and make it a little different each time or whatever, but that led to an improvisational freedom for me of staying rooted with the tune so you can tell what the tune is, but then explore it, like take a different path, but say the kind of the same statement that the tune was trying to say. And each time you do that, then the improv segment actually could be a new tune because it's different. And so that leads to writing tunes like you played a, a lick during a dance. You said, wow, I don't remember any other tunes where that lick appeared. Um, I'll write a tune based on the lick. So it sort of like, is this motor driven thing. Yeah, I see it as a
2: continuum playing the tune as it's written, uh, although if you're coming up with a harmony, uh, then, then with a numb conversation, and then uh, suddenly you're a new tune today.
4: I've probably learned the most recently um, in uh, during, well, probably during the Posse years um, with uh, my uh, longtime musical partner, Oliver Scanlon, who is similarly interested in um, the co-writing part and that's, that's either something you can come to organically and fairly painlessly, or it's just terrifying because it's all about trust. The process part is all about trust and, uh, and you really need a long time collaborator that you've kind of been through some fire with in order to kind of settle that question and just get down to, to like really having a brain meld, um, and having that work. So. Um, in every single instance of of co-writing, whatever the actual route to the, the finish line is in terms of who 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 provided what, um, I come away feeling like I grew some as as a uh, as a writer myself. Like I could go back and and approach the next thing I want to try to codify in terms of a, a fresh idea in a slightly different way as a result of of that process, so I just kind of want to put in a pitch for that, too.
3: It's the next terrifying frontier.
4: (laughs) Even if the tunes (laughs) are no damn good at all, it's still worth doing.
1: (laughs) I wish we could talk about this all night. We were joking that there should be an after party where we just keep geeking out about all this stuff. but I want to ask all of you, um, it's just been so wonderful to hear some of your thoughts. And are there any last thoughts about you know, mentoring or teaching or anything, dance music, that you want to leave with us tonight? Anything you want to add besides everything that we haven't talked about yet? And there's been a, a really great sidebar in the chat, by the way, too, which I'm really enjoying. Feel free to keep chatting over there, everybody. Sorry, go ahead, Kate.
2: Uh, I'll end with a story. Uh you know i've been at this a really long time um and unlike some of my com- some of my fellow players, sometimes I like it and sometimes I'm really burnt out on it um and a while ago, I was wondering why am I doing this I'm poor <laughs> i can't, I have to get on an airplane, which I hate. Um, but here's what happens is i I get to a dance. And, and, like, this guy will come in who's been busting his ass at some job all week. He's tired. And then as soon as we start playing, he, he stands up and he's moving around. He's jiving. He's forgotten everything. He's happy. And I thought, damn, that is good work. If, he, if, if, if our band can do that for people, make, make them forget and, and just celebrate life and rhythm just, just right in the moment, that is magic, and that's why I do it.: You're here.:
3: Yep, you, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> yep:
2: I've been playing music for, you know, decades, and to me, music is still magic, and I don't understand how it reaches people the way it does in such a magical way
1: and keeping that newness and freshness and freedom is such an important part of it. Thanks for listening to Pulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!
0: The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.